Friends, I'm a little apprehensive about the message I have to preach to you today. As God's put it on my heart, so if you have a problem, you'll have to talk to him about it. My job is to deliver it as graciously and um, enticingly as possible without being manipulative, but I'm just trying to lay things on the table. Now, I may or may not have your attention. It's like, what is he going to use? I'm, I, what is he going to talk about? Listen, I will do my best not to use any bad words. Okay? Uh, but it, the, the message of the gospel is simply offensive to a lot of people. It simply is. And uh, I'm just trying to deliver the content, so don't shoot the messenger today. But we've been talking about the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And we need to understand that it is, when you listen to it seriously... It is somewhat, well not somewhat, it's just plain doggone offensive. So that's my little preamble, my little apology in advance. I'm not really apologizing, I'm just explaining. uh, Why you might get your feathers ruffled a little bit. And that's, that's probably a good thing because the role of a good preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So whatever category you find yourselves in today... May the Lord bless you and meet you. I know I struggle between being afflicted and comfortable. So you think it's bad having to listen to me for 20 plus minutes. 40 more likely, some of you are saying. Feels like an hour. It could be a lot worse. You could spend all week preparing this. And then on Monday, I know that God gives me a review test. Every time I preach a sermon, I know I'm going to get hit with something on Monday. And say, okay, Rick, do you really believe what you said? It's like, oh, come on, God, that's not fair. Anyway, I'm just trying to put things in perspective for you. We're talking about a familiar story uh, to, to many of us. And actually, the title of this message is called... Uh, can we just go back for a minute, Emily, back to the previous slide? The Prodigal God. I'm going to explain the title in a minute, but I'm going, to read the past, I'm going to read the story to you first, okay? Next slide, please. Yep. Tax collectors and notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with sinful people, even eating with them. To Ill- then... We go to the two stories that Daphne read, remember, about the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then Jesus amps it up a little bit and talks about two lost boys. And it goes like this. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them the story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, Dad, I want my share of your estate now before you die. We don't understand how offensive this was in that culture. Basically, he's saying, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. Okay? So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. 
When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and also I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Woohoo. That's not in the word, but it's there. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and he asked the servants, what was going on? Your brother's back, he was told. And your father's filled the fat, killed, killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to in awe and all that time. You never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost but now he is found. Next one, please. Who was this story for? It is a trick question, and I want you to think. Who was Jesus talking to when he told this story? The Pharisees, okay? Remember that Jesus was in trouble, again, um, because he was people, the, the, the religious people, the Pharisees, the insiders were complaining about the type of people that Jesus was hanging out with. In direct response to his grumbling, he tells these three stories, all of them dealing with the theme of lost and found. He starts with the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then gets into the lost boy, or to be more correctly, two lost sons. We can all, all relate to the kind of anxiety in the first two stories, losing a livelihood or losing a precious possession. Uh, I remember when our daughter was young, uh, she lost a ring in our backyard, and we were frantically, literally, on our hands and knees, going through the grass. And I'm sure our, we had this nice, respectable neighbor lady that would often, she spent, one of her hobbies was watching the hills. And she'd look out the window and say, what the dickens are they doing now? Crawling around. And then, when we found it, of course, we had to do the happy dance in the backyard. I'm sure she thought, what now? Anyway, we were so happy when we found that. I always think of that incident when I read the story of the lady looking for a lost coin. 
But how much more traumatic when we lose a child? I don't know if you've ever been in a large crowd and you lose a kid, even for a couple of seconds. <gasps> sheer panic, sheer panic. When my son Micah, who's now 21 and fairly responsible, living on his own in Vancouver, one time I went on a school trip as a chaperone, and I momentarily lost contact with him in a large train station in Ottawa. And just for a couple of seconds, like, <gasps> I'm dead. I lost my kid, and I lost his friend. Where'd he go? And then all of a sudden, they reappeared. It's like, <sighs> but what about losing a child, not just for a couple of seconds, but for days and months and years and maybe even decades, and you're never quite sure if you're going to get him, get him back. That's what this story was about, and that's why it would grip the audience so powerfully. And the way it happened, the way it happened was so dramatic. There's a young man who's just itchy to, to leave home. And this was, uh, it, it was absolutely scandalous behavior in that culture, as it would be today. It was the equivalent of wishing his father were dead so um, the will could be read and the estate could be divided between the heirs. Let's do the next slide, please. Might be a little better. Okay. Um, this was an agricultural culture so most of the father's assets were likely tied up in the land that he owned. So it may have been necessary to liquidate and sell off some of the land to satisfy the son's request. It would have taken a lot of hardship to come up with all that cash and give the son his inheritance at that time. The loss of the property would have meant a significant loss in income to the rest of the family, as well as the loss of land it may have been in the family for generations. And the whole family's identity would have been shaken by the selfishness of this young man and Jesus audiences would have thought immediately what an ungrateful wretch what a terrible disrespectful thing to do to your father and we know what happens next the young man leaves home and wastes everything he has on wild living absolutely broke in the middle of the famine the lowest job the only job he can find is feeding pigs and what a come down for a good Jewish boy all he's doing is feeding pigs. And part of Jesus' audience, the, respect people, the respectable people would say, well, that kid got what's coming to him. That serves him right. Ha! I bet Jesus is going to pounce on that kid. Slopping the hogs. How disgusting. In that culture, that really was about as low as you could get. I think the other half of his audience was probably identifying to some extent with what the young man was experiencing. They were saying, ouch, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I feel for that guy. He was awfully stupid, but I've been there too. Eventually, the young man comes to his senses, which is normally how God starts to get a hold of us in our lives, right? We come to our senses, and we realize, oh, this isn't working. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. God, can you help me? It's really the first thing he's done right in this story. And so he starts rehearsing a properly repentant speech for his father. Dad, I forfeited the right to be called your son, but maybe you could take me on as a hired man. So he summons up his courage, the courage of the desperate, because he's got no other alternatives. And he comes home practicing his speech as he goes. Okay, Emily, next slide. Yeah. So he's pretty bedraggled state. 
I hope you like the green tinge in the PowerPoint today. It's kind of a grinchy feeling, Lou Andrews suggested. Anyway. The tension mounts in the audience. What will happen next? What kind of a reception will he get? Will he be disowned? What kind of vengeance will the father take? And I think the religious people are just licking their chops saying, give it to him good. Let this kid have it. Ah. What happens next? The crowd is utterly astonished. As my English friends would say, they are absolutely gobsmacked. The father's been actively waiting for the son's return. He hasn't changed the locks. Think about it. He hasn't changed the locks. He hasn't moved. He hasn't changed addresses. He's actively looking for that son to come. And when he lays eyes on him, this dignified patriarch throws proper behavior and etiquette to the wind. And he runs to his son. Now in that culture... This was absolutely scandalous. A dignified older gentleman, if he moved at all, would expect the son to come to him crawling on glass, 10 miles uphill with a properly repentant attitude. And maybe, maybe, maybe I will not disown you. Maybe I will take you on as a hired hand. What does this old gentleman do? He picks up his robe, and he, and he huffs and puffs as fast as he can out to his boy. And does he give him a lecture? No. Does he tell him how much he's disappointed the family? No. Does he tell him, remind him how much he's dishonored him in, front, in, in the whole village and community? No. He gives him a huge hug and a kiss and said, get this kid something decent to wear. Bring him some shoes. Warm up the Barbie. We're going to have a party. My boy's home. Oh, my boy's home. That's how, that's how the father responded to this story. It's absolutely amazing. So a party breaks out. The application for the position of hired man is flatly rejected. The boy is restored to full sonship. The adoption papers are definitely fast-tracked. And he's back in the family, just like he'd never left. So, there's a party. The fatted calf, the one saved for very special occasions, is hauled out and, and it's uh, steak time. No tube steaks for this party. This is the best stuff. It's time to call in the neighborhood for a block party and life is good. Soon it's the end of the workday and the big brother comes in from the fields. He's hot and sweaty and tired. Let's do the next slide, Emily. Maybe let's go back one. Sorry, I don't have my remote today. And back one more. Okay, I like this picture because it was a... I, what's fascinating, you, you'll see it in, in its true color if you go on to Google. <laughs> uh, it, it, just the way different cultures portray the return of this boy. And here's a whole African village just, just having a party because this lost kid has come home. So you can imagine the setting... It's the end of the workday. The big brother comes in from the fields. He's hot and sweaty and tired and more than grumpy. But his ears perk up. Who's got the stereo crank so loud? What the dickens is going on? Nobody's working. What's going on? What's all the carousing in the backyard? Music on a workday? Has everything just completely fallen apart? What is going on? One of the servants comes out and tells him what's happening. He gets angry. 
more than angry. He is absolutely ripping mad. He is furious. And he refuses to join the party. How dare his father welcome home his good-for-nothing brother? Has he gone mad? Has he begotten all the misery and humiliation and nights spent crying over that lost son? Why should they celebrate this rebellious loser? And what's going to happen to his inheritance now? I didn't show it, but there's a cute little cartoon of the prodigal, the, the runaway boy coming home, kneeling at the father, getting forgiveness, and the old, older brothers in the back saying, huh, he'll probably get the top bunk now too. Kind of sulking. So that was his attitude. He was absolutely sulking. The father who's hosting the party is forced to leave because he hears about this older brother. This is another great embarrassment and humiliation. His own son is rebelling against him. He goes out once again to seek another lost boy. This one has been outwardly compliant all his life, but inwardly so rebellious and angry. The very worst kind of rebel. If you don't believe me, just listen to the flood of jealousy and resentment that pours out of him. He goes out and invites him in. And the older brother says, Look! Which is a very disrespectful way of addressing your elders. All these years I've served you. And other translations say, I've slaved for you. And never caused you one moment of grief. Right. Okay. You never did this for me. What jealousy. He refers to his long-missing brother as this son of yours. Whenever someone is in your, in, in your family is in trouble, it's like, look what your son did, right? Does that sound familiar? Okay. So he's so angry and blaming. It's not an endearing term he uses to his, his brother. He's greatly distanced himself from the younger brother. His jealousy and resentment has turned him into something ugly that totally contradicts the image of the loyal firstborn He's been trying to project all these years. So all these years, he's the faithful, outwardly compliant son, but inside is all kinds of ugliness and rebellion. Yuck. Now watch how the father responds. (laughs) Not with bitter recriminations, no sarcastic rebuke, no judgment for the judgmental attitude. This is how he responds. He begins with a word that is best translated as, my dear son, my dear boy, oh, buddy. It's hard, I would be hard-pressed to express if I were in his shoes or his sandals. I'd be tempted to tell him to take a hike as well. Everything I have is yours, my son. Don't be afraid on losing out on my love or being shortchanged by your brother's return. Don't be so threatened or insecure. We had to celebrate your brother's return. He was dead, and now he's alive. Lost, but now found. What a gentle and firm rebuke and reassurance from the man in charge. But Jesus, in this story, leaves us hanging. Usually Jesus does not leave us hanging, right? But we say in this story, Jesus, don't leave me hanging here. What happens in this story? He purposely ends it like this. Why? Because he's not talking to the notorious sinners 
hanging around him. He's talking to the respectable religious folks who were putting their trust in their external behavior. They didn't pay any attention to their internal attitudes. It was all about externals. So he was targeting the story to the religious people surrounding him. He wanted to to directly confront the Pharisees with their lostness. The, The older brother in this story is actually in worse shape than the younger one. Ah, Emily, sorry, I've lost us. Let's go back one. There. This picture, unfortunately, doesn't really portray the story that well. But there's a a younger brother grabbing hold of a dad, and in the background, on on the right side, is this scowling older brother. Do you know, in my, it's interesting, when I googled prodigal son, prodigal son, older brother, prodigal son, younger brother, most of the stories, when they say, prodigal son it's all about the younger brother coming and kneeling at the feet of the father and receiving love and forgiveness and that's great that's good but that's not really the point of the story the people that Jesus was trying to get to in this story were the scowling older brothers the religious people the outwardly respectable people that were so full of sin and selfishness and confidence in their own morality that they had no time for God. That's who he was targeting. That's who he was really after. Maybe now is... uh, Well, I'll, I'll get to this in a minute. I mean, the church, I think, today is filled with older brothers. Folks who are so op, uh, preoccupied with maintaining proper appearances and behaviors that they miss out on the Father's heart. Wouldn't it be sad to spend your life coming to church faithfully for 40 years and miss out on God's heart. We sing about, you know, Jesus loves me for 40 years, but not experience of that? That's sad. And I'm not saying that in a condemning way. I'm not pointing my finger at anybody. problem with that, of course, is that you've got at least three fingers pointing back at you, right? So I'm including us in this dilemma. Why is it so easy for us to get fall into the religious performance trap and we miss out on the Father's heart for us. It's because we are so preoccupied with projecting an outward appearance that we've got it all together, we're all okay, and we miss out on the Father heart of God and what He intends for us to experience. Tim Keller has written a book called The Prodigal God. I thoroughly recommend it to you. And he says... And I quote, if our churches are not appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of older brothers than we'd like to think. I think we have that quote up there, Emily, if you just flip through the slides. One more? One more? One more. Okay, hold that verse. That's, I'm going to get to that in a minute. Sorry, we're just working with all the technical stuff today. Now is a good a time as any to explain the title of this sermon, The Prodigal God. Technically, the term prodigal does not mean runaway kid. Technically, the term prodigal means someone um, who is recklessly extravagant or having spent everything. The younger brother is described as prodigal because he recklessly spent everything he had in wild living once he escaped all the rules of home. But if you think carefully about it, the father in this story is the reckless one, running and searching. How many boys were lost in this story? Two. 
Get that in your heads, friends. There were two lost boys. And the elder brother, I think, was more lost than the younger brother. And twice, this dear old gentleman went out after a rebellious son. Twice. That shows his heart. He was a recklessly extravagant father, running out, extending grace to them, even though they both rebuffed his efforts before. He clearly does not take no for an answer. He persists in offering his reckless, extravagant love to two boys who don't deserve it at all. I think the father was a prodigal in this story, the recklessly extravagant lover of rebellious sons. Most of our Bibles, if you look at Luke chapter 15, they have a heading entitled The Prodigal Son. The headings in your Bible chapters uh, didn't come originally from God, okay? And people put them in there to be helpful. But if I were you, uh, I'm not telling you to deface your Bible or anything, but if I were you, I would scratch out the prodigal son and put the prodigal God in that heading. Because it's God who is recklessly extravagant in his love towards us. The younger son gets most of the attention because of his dramatic departure and return. And again, most of the artwork I researched focuses on this theme. And it's a lovely hallmark moment. And there's yellow ribbons all over the place. And they're so glad to have this boy home. That's good. But the heart of the story, again, is directed at the rebellious older brother saying, I received sinners and disreputable people who admit their need for God. I get that. They come back to me. But what about you respectable people who are trusting in your own religious performance to be right with me? What are you going to do with that? Jesus didn't intend this story to be sentimental at all. Think of the original setting. Face to face with his bitterest, most bitter adversaries, the ones who would later plot his execution and to mock him as he died, died in agony. With great courage and tenderness, he invites the Pharisees to repent. Do they understand the Father's heart? How can they be so close and yet so far from the truth? That is so sad. You can show up here at Elam for decades and be so close and yet so far from the Father's heart. That's just sad. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I don't have anybody specifically in mind. But Holy Spirit's here and he's talking to you. And he's calling you and he's inviting you and saying, hey, do you want to experience the Father's heart? So don't numb out that sense from the Holy Spirit. Just just hold that for a minute and I'll give you something to do about it. It was too hard on these people's egos to admit they were sinners too in need of forgiveness. They'd have to sacrifice their pride. They continually shunned God's offer of reconciliation and preferred to live in prisons of their own making. So you want to know what love looks like? It looks like the prodigal God who's recklessly extravagant towards his rebellious sons. He intentionally seeks them out, proactively searching for the lost ones. Having spent everything, he gives them what they need to be fully restored to dearly loved children. I love this verse from the Old Testament that we've got up here. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. Everybody goes sometime. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person 
may not remain estranged from him. Now, when we read this story, we think classically of prodigals or those people, those younger brothers who've wandered away in self-indulgent lifestyles, kicked over the traces and are living life the way they want. It's true. It applies to them. It also applies to people who are outwardly respectable and inwardly lost. It's just as easy for... uh, Next slide, please, Emily. If, just think about this for a minute. If churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we like to think. Yesterday, as we were giving out hot chocolate, 1,500 cups, by the way. Your fingers thought out from that? Okay. 1,500 cups of hot chocolate given out in the front. And I'm thinking, and I'm looking at all these people, and thinking about all the conversations we're having, and saying, oh, man. How would these people fit inside Elam? Would they, would they fit? Would they find a home here? I sure hope they would. I sure hope that we would be welcoming to folks like that. It might not fit in totally with who we are or our expectations. God's not going to give us more folks until we prepare ourselves and prepare a place for them to land. God is not in the business of delivering new babies to families that don't welcome new babies. But if we position ourselves right spiritually, if we humble ourselves, get right with God and say, Lord, send us new babies, he will, okay? He's like that because he loves adopting people into his family. So the question is, today, where do we fit in? Are we the older brother, the younger brother? Who do we want to be like in this story? Next slide, please, Emily. You can escape God as much through morality and religion as you can escape God through immorality and irreligion. You get the point? You can be as lost sitting in a church for 40 years as you can be never having entered a church building at all. Why? Because if we depend on us keeping the rules and us justifying ourselves, then we are in deep trouble. We are just as lost. I'm going to close the service now. Um, Next slide, please, Emily. I just have a few questions that I want to ask. Each of us can relate probably somewhat to the younger brother and the older brother. Growing up in a conservative Christian home, I was a pretty compliant kid. I didn't have a choice, much choice. My dad was a public school principal. I went to his school. He was an elder in a church. I went to his church. It was pretty tough to get away with stuff. Uh, don't worry, I've had healing prayer for that. But anyway, um, but let me tell you, inwardly, I was such a rebel, such a rebel. And I never, I really vacillated between the older brother and younger brother. That's why I relate to this story. This story resonates so much. My life changed. It turned around when I met the loving father. Now, my earthly dad was a good man. He's very patient. He had a lot of good points. But no earthly father can match the love of the heavenly father has for us. Okay? Earthly fathers have the responsibilities, but they have their limitations because they're human. But when you encounter the heavenly father and his heart, like Jesus told in this story, it is a total game changer. 
Because he is the one that is looking for us to start wandering down the road, not sure what kind of reception we're going to get. And he runs out, and he doesn't care what people think of him, and he throws this recklessly extravagant party for us when we come home to him. When I started following Jesus, the Bible tells me they had this amazing party in heaven for Rick Hill. In my honor. Whoa. Actually, it's probably in Jesus' honor, really. But it's like, hey, we finally got this rebellious church kid to repent and realize that he couldn't be good enough on his own or by being outwardly compliant or trying to please people and trying to please himself at the same time. He, I think he got it. He absolutely surrendered to Jesus and he wants to be filled with God. Yahoo! The same thing happened for all of us, those of us who follow Jesus wholeheartedly, they had a party for you. That's really something to celebrate, right? So I don't know where you are in this story. I don't know if you can relate to a younger brother, if you're just going off and trying to do your own thing. I, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know you well enough, and that's probably a good thing, because I can be free to say pretty much whatever God says, and... Let the chips fall where they may. If you are like a younger brother, then you say, need to say, Lord, forgive me for my tendencies to run away from your goodness. Okay? We have these tendencies to run away from God's kindness. Next slide. How am I like the older brother? Lord, forgive me for my self-righteous and judgmental attitudes. If you find yourself spending more time looking down your nose at other people and saying, oh Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like those people. Those people in the Santa Claus parade. Oh, those people out there. If you find yourselves more preoccupied with what other people think of you or justifying yourselves, it's a really hard thing to discover. But I would encourage you to be ruthlessly honest with yourself. In what way do you resemble the elder brother? Let's take a minute and just pray about that. All right? Close your eyes for a sec. Lord, I pray that you would show us today how are we like the younger brother, how are we like the older brother in this story. Holy Spirit, just come and point out stuff lovingly, kindly, firmly, and honestly. Point out stuff in our hearts that we need to repent of. We recognize our tendency to wander from you, to please ourselves, and to do our own thing. We repent of those tendencies, Lord. We repent. Next slide. Last slide, Emily, please. Lord, how am I like the Father in this story? How can I live out his reckless love for others? First of all, you can't do it by yourself, so don't even try. Don't even try to love people. What? Don't even try to love people without the Spirit because you're just going to get frustrated. I mean, I appreciate people who do good work just because they're good people, but that's not sustainable. If we want to pass on the love of God to other people, we need to receive it like this. 
You know, we need just to just, just receive it. I'm going to ask you to do something. Stand up for a minute, okay? Now, this is going to freak out some of us because we've never raised our hands in church. Just raise, everybody raise your right hand. Okay? Sorry, getting some feedback. And then extend your left, okay? We receive God's love and we extend it out to other people, okay? That's the posture that God is calling us to have, all right? And no one freaked out. Nobody died. I just left my hand short, okay? And you may never have to do this again, all right? But let's, let's pray like this for a moment, okay? Heavenly Father, today we receive your love. Just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, today we receive your love. Help us to extend your love to others. Change us from the inside out. Forgive us for being like the younger brother. Forgive us for being like the older brother. Help us to grow up to be like our heavenly Papa. Amen.